we are starting a study in Ephesians, and um, it's a it's a break in our long term study of Genesis. It's my guess we won't get done before the summer's over, though. It's it's an intense book. Uh, it's a special book. So that's where we're going today. If you want to turn to a Ephesians chapter one, and um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, Father. As a church, we we gather. To get today to worship you according to your good pleasure. Help us to put aside the failures of yesterday and the worries about today and the fears about tomorrow, that we would receive your word as it's intended, the full value of your word for our training that you hope to accomplish in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're doing the first uh, six verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm reading out of the uh, NASB 95. So um, I, I, you can do use whatever Bible text you want. I tend to like to adapt whatever Bible text the church uses. When I was in BSF, we used NIV and so on. So this is a, a Gunner's version here. He didn't write it. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Father, may your word permeate each of us and address the the specifics the Holy Spirit would bring to mind. Yes, Lord, do convict us, stretch us, and encourage us today both for our good and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so what a privilege it is for me, anyways, to be up here and preach Ephesians. In my notes, it says, take a deep breath, and it says, humble yourself. Me, not you. Next to that says, you don't understand what you're about to preach. That's a good note, isn't it? And it's funny, I thought about this. We're going to get into some of this uh, choice that God has for us on these things. But understand, these are things that are true of God and not something that our pea brains necessarily fully understand, but he gives it to us for our encouragement. It's my intention this morning to give a little introduction to the book of Ephesians and then to spend most of our time uh, in verses 3 through 6. Now, uh, Pastor Gunner has indicated that um, he has some material on the introduction of uh, Ephesians, some background material that he'll share probably over the next few weeks. Um, so, I'll leave it to him to cover what seems appropriate about the uh, the place of Ephesians in the Bible and uh, and the writings of Paul and matters concerning geography and the time of the writing and the historical context. He'll he'll brush you over those things as he expands it. But this morning we're primarily concerned with the impact of the Book of Ephesians on us or what it should have on us. We post twentieth century Valley Center Christians. Was this twenty first? What century are we in now? Twenty second? I don't. I can't keep up. Yeah. So I have no slides on purpose. Everything I'm going to say 
as by way of introduction, is going to be reiterated and more fully explained as we go through the book. It's amazing how Paul writes, kind of like other people. The first thing he writes kind of introduces what he's going to expand on. So we'll get this in depth. Now, when we studied this in Sunday school, and it's kind of cool how our adult Sunday school has been studying something that Gunnar decides to preach on, um, I was struck with the difficulty of establishing a theme for the book of Ephesians. Now, like the Gospel of John, it's clearly, clearly written uh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The book tells us so. That's what it's there for. And Genesis, we introduced that. We said that Genesis was written to introduce and track the development of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Ephesians is not narrative format. It's, it's not that way. It's both theological and also devotional, and I can't give you a single-sentence summary on the overall teaching of Ephesians. The truth, the truth put forward by Paul are really meant to be deeply personal and life-changing, not so much academic. And it's God's intention that the book actually permeates into us, not simply into our minds, but into the depths of our very being. And I'm not original in seeing that. This was the discovery of John McKay. John McKay, 100 years ago or so, was a former president of Princeton Theological Seminary back when they were a theological seminary. Um, In his journal, referencing Ephesians, he wrote, I had been quickened. I was really alive, and Jesus Christ became the center of everything. Wow. Now, in reflection, in, in my present Christian experience, I can't always be characterized as being really alive, and I can't tell you that in everything, Jesus Christ is a center. But what I can tell you that's true of me and I believe of you is that I want to be really alive. I would like to experience the surpassing value, the benefit, the reality of Jesus Christ being at the center of everything. I'd like to see things that way, and you can. Now, what John McKay was actually given testimony to was the energizing power of God within his life that had drawn him into an understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, not simply in a generic way, but in a very personal, in a saving way. And the glories, the glorious blessings that he entered into are then described for us in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, all the way down in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions according to the kind attention of his, intention of his will to the praise of his glory and grace. Now, before we speak about God's pre-creation choice of us, yes, that's theology. I'll try to not make it boring. And this word predestination, let's look at the organization of the book, this love letter. See, the book, from a religious point of view, is actually written, laid out backwards. It's opposite of religious paradigm. For instance, chapter 6 is going to tell us to be strong in the Lord and to put on the full armor of God. Religion encourages us to first 
clean up our lives and demonstrate to God that you have strong, strong faith. But that comes at the end in chapter 6. Religion tells us that after dressing up like a Christian and cleaning up our act, we, would, we should next present a good religious image and make sure our families keep up appearances. Well, in God's paradigm, that's much later in the game. It's not until chapter 5, way down the road. Religion tells us that after dressing up like a Christian, after organizing our relationships like a Christian, we should get away from those worldly people. But it's not until chapter 4 that God tells us that you should walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. And religion would tell you that only after you've dressed right and lived right and separated yourself from those bad influences can you now begin to understand the mysteries of God. But understanding the mystery of God and His purpose is in chapter 3. You get to have that before you ever do anything or clean up anything. Before you ever were called to do right things. In fact, in chapter 2, he spells out our real condition. Rather than emphasizing the message of clean up your life, God tells us that he is fully aware of our situation and the depths of our utter lostness. He says in chapter 2, he says, and you don't have to turn here, you'll get it next uh, in three or four weeks, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Wow, God sees what we're about, doesn't he? That's chapter 2. And you see, you see where I'm going, but just to finish the thought, Religion says, essentially, do all of these prerequisite activities, and then, after you get to heaven, then maybe you can experience the favor of God. Maybe. But God, in organizing the message of Ephesians, God makes it abundantly clear that we can't do or be anything favorable toward Him until first, God takes the initiative and chooses us to be one of his own. And that, before you were even born, get this, he has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, who was here for the foundation of the world? Okay, I wasn't either. But what does that really mean? What does that really mean? Well, he tells us. Next verse. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Listen. The first thing that God wants you to know not in your mind, but deep in your very being, is that you didn't first choose God, but He chose you. Before you were born, He chose you. Before the world was created, He chose you. Before there was time and space, He chose you. Three words, 
Keep that mantra going. You're going to need it through the rest of the book. Now, hold on to that thought. He chose you. Put it on the shelf because I have to do a little detour and come back to that. The fact that God chose us does not relegate us from responsibility. This teaching of election or predestination in no way nullifies the truth that we must, in fact, make a choice, an active choice for God as well. Uh, first, uh, excuse me, John 1.12 says it well. He says, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's a belief that must take place. From God's perspective, he chose you. From man's perspective, we must believe or put our faith in or put our trust in him in order to appropriate salvation from sin. So what does this look like for someone to come to saving faith? Well, well typically there's, there's a process, a process, if you think about it, apply to yourself. First, there's the, the truth of the gospel is presented to you. Maybe, maybe your grandmother told you about it. Maybe a friend told you on a walk. Maybe you saw it in a book. Maybe in children's Sunday school way back when the gospel was presented. And these conversations begin to, they, they simmer in your mind. You think about these things. And maybe, uh, your toddlers are beginning to ask you deep probing questions like, Hey, grandma, where is heaven? How do I get there? You see, it's simmering in their mind. Second, as we recognize the truths of the gospel, the Holy Spirit enables us to apply these truths to ourself. Hey, this might include me. The Spirit comes and says, you know, this, this is not just some useful information down the road or, or just for your mom and dad or maybe for religious people, but all of a sudden there's uh, there's this movement, isn't there? You've had that. And re- you realize that the Holy Spirit's enabling you to do what maybe you've never done before, which is to see these truths as being conf- uh, confronted, uh, as confronting you, and maybe you need to apply these to your own life. You're saying, how does this fit with me? Third, having been convicted of those truths, namely this, our sin and our need for a Savior, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that the remedy for our problem, for our sin, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us to Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And we're confronted with these things, and eventually we're brought face-to-face with Christ, and being brought face-to-face, we say, I, I put my trust in you. I believe in you. I take the step. And fourth, the result of this newfound Christian faith is not built on human wisdom. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I I presented Jesus and him crucified. We didn't use words of human wisdom. Uh, We didn't, uh, in order that your faith might not rest on on human wisdom, but on the power of God. And, And this is how people are brought to salvation generally. You can follow that pathway. And at some point you begin to realize through the Holy Spirit, as he works in our heart, that faith in Christ is entirely without reference to your own merits. You didn't do anything to make yourself attractive, anything worth being saved for. There's no reason you can figure out why he chose you or why he saved you. And you think it, it, you resonate with the old hymn writers, uh, McShane, chosen not, for, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in my Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love, how much I owe. You have to give some credit to those old hymn writers. They get it. And that's the process of salvation. But that's not the source of salvation. The source of salvation is founded on God's initiative. 
his loving choice for you. And that, that was long before you could first make a choice for him by ourselves. Again, the context of Ephesians 1 actually supports this. Way down in verse 13, which you'll get to in about two weeks, God extols the mystery of the selection. He says in Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see, the context of Ephesians chapter 1, the fact that he chose you, also shows you need to choose him. It's contextual. It's right there. Listen, God enables us to believe, but God does not believe for us. God enables us to believe, but God does not believe for us. We have responsibility. And how does it all work? I don't know. It's a God thing. So how do I know if I am one of those who God has chosen before the foundation of the world? Well, have you responded to the Holy Spirit and placed your trust in him? If so, you are. It's that simple. Okay, off the shelf, back to he chose you. Let's get back into the text. Just chew on that. In the weeks to come, the book is going to explain it further. God will dig deeper into it. But let's you and I go back to he chose you uh, that we shelved a page and a half ago. He chose you is at the foundation of everything he asks you to do later on in the book. So every time you come to something hard, like children, obey your parents, you've got to look at he chose you. That helps you. Verse 3. Now, the mistake here is to think that his choice of you means that you were some way better than the rest. This is, this is true of my... Jewish heritage, they got all cocky as his chosen people. This is true of many people in uh, Reformed and Calvinist circles. He chose me, I'm not like you. This is true of religious people all down the road. I was born in a religious family, I'm special, you're not. This doctrine, this truth was never meant to make us proud, but to humble us, not make us arrogant. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him. You see, the Bible begins with God calling out man. Ephesians starts with God calling out man. The Bible begins with God taking the initiative of man, and it's God here who uh, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, essentially, I want you to bless God. Blessed be the God and Father. That means he wants us to bless God. And what does it mean to bless God? Well, all that means is to speak well of him, to declare his greatness. Now, in, 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 you may find this best done in music. The purpose of the worship team is not to draw a crowd so the preacher has someone to preach to. Their purpose is to lead us in blessing God as a church. It's a big deal. It's not entertainment to get things started. And for those who want to experience the super, super substantial abundant life, listen to this. Look at God's verbs in this passage. Appropriate them in your heart. 
Not simply in your mind, these verbs. Uh, verse 3, he has blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. Uh, verse 8, the riches of his grace, he lavished upon us. In fact, you look at the nouns also. Um, it's God's will. That's God's plan. It's God's purpose. It is unmistakable. It's impossible to miss this. And if God is the source of these blessings, will you also notice the sphere of these blessings? He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it's a mistake to think that the blessings in the heavenly places are something reserved for you way up in heaven and you get to experience them when you get there. That's not what he's talking about. Yes, in 1 Peter, uh, we read about an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. But that's different than what Paul's talking about here. That's a different gig. We learn in Ephesians 6, don't turn there, you'll get it later, that the heavenly places are not above us. Rather, the heavenly places are spiritual existences around us and besides us. He says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's now. That's what you're experiencing now. And if he could open your eyes to the spiritual world right here in these seats that are around us, it would be really humbling. In weeks to come, we're going to learn how to effectively battle against these spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. But know this, victory begins with the security that comes from embracing the truth that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's your anchor That's what you hold on to when the going gets tough. And what he chooses, he keeps. What he chooses, he keeps. Way down in verse verse 13, you'll see it in a few weeks. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption until the redemption of those who are God's possession of the praise of his glory. Now, the redemption here does refer to future in heaven, a future time, that you are chosen by God and secure in God is the primary truth that God presents in his introduction to this journey toward Christ-likeness. A person who cannot embrace the security of God's choosing cannot advance in the journey toward Christ-likeness. You'll hit a brick wall. You can't get past it. The security that comes from his choice of you is, is foundational because the journey is long and hard. Now, the journey is what I really care about. And we'll talk about that. But my gut feeling is we cannot go there until we talk about this issue of um, predestination. You know, objection number two to Christianity, if you talk to a lot of people that are kind of like have a bent against Christianity, you'll, you'll figure these out. Objection number two is always, if God predestines people, then other people never had a chance. God's unfair. It'll come up. It's objection number two. Objection number one is, the problem of a good God and pain in the world. But this is number two. So what about all this predestination stuff? 
Well, predestination to adoption, also known as the doctrine of election, is, is absolutely biblical. You really can't read through the Bible and miss it. It's an undeniable truth. It's just there. It's a wonderful and beautiful truth. And that said, it's one of the most hotly debated topics in church history. Book upon book and argument upon argument goes way back. And along with that, the truth that every individual person must individually receive the gift of salvation offered by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, if they are to appropriate and enjoy the free gift of salvation, is clearly taught in the Bible as well. These two truths are there. The debate argues then, do I choose God or does he choose me? And if one applies human logic to this, you see that you can't really have it both ways. Human logic. And to complicate things, God is going to fix all this later. To complicate things, (laughs) the Bible tells us this gift, this adoption is available to all who would believe. We call this the doctrine of free will. Play with that one. John 1.12, but to as many as received him. Then he gave the right to become children of God. First John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh. And Titus 2, 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But don't stop there. We're on a roll. If God elects some to go to heaven, does that mean that God elects the rest to go to hell? And how then does God choose? Does he look forward to see what choice we would make to look so he can choose those who choose him? No. How do we reconcile God's sovereign election of his chosen and the free will for us to choose? Is your mind spinning yet? Well, Gunner's going to cover all of that in the weeks to come (laughs) and fix it. But for now, understand that the sovereign election and human choice biblically coexist. And I think Spurgeon nailed this. C.H. Spurgeon once was asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, and he said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in this endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. Now, had God not told us about our pre-existent election, it still would have been true. So why did he tell us? His purpose in revealing this wonderful truth is for our encouragement, not for argument. And still, should you feel compelled to argue the point, Here's a few verses to consider to help you win. Second <laughs> Timothy 2.23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Romans 11.34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And then Job 38, were you there when I laid the foundations? Tell me if you understand. The truth that God chose us before we had done anything good or bad should cause us to humble ourselves and to sing his praises, not to argue from ignorance. Selah. (laughs) Still, you will come across the guy who can't stand this, No matter how you slice it, he'll argue that the two truths logically 
can't exist together. Listen, I agree. If your kindergartner fails to see the logic of calculus, the problem is not with the math. It's with the undeveloped mind of the kindergartner. You see, compared to God, compared to God, we have a pea brain. Don't you want a God who is bigger than you? I do. But God whispers this truth that he chose us to us for our encouragement. It's special knowledge. It's something special. Um, at the Urbana, Urbana conference, who's been to Urbana? You ever been to Urbana? I don't mean like the school, but like as a conference. Back in 1984, um, that wasn't that long ago, I remember it, uh, Eric Alexander gave several messages on the book of Ephesians, and, and he settled the issue in such an eloquent way, I have to actually read it here. He, it's like this guy nailed it. He says, first, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's right there in the Bible. You can't read your Bible without dealing with it. It is biblical. Secondly, it's difficult. That's why so many people have so many problems. And thirdly, it's profitable. Embracing the doctrine of election is not then to become, a, for us, a banner under which we march, nor is it a bomb to be dropped on people, but rather it is a bastion for our souls when we bow down in the amazing earnest of the fact that we are who we are in Christ, because before the dawn of time, he set his affection upon us in his son. Well said. Well said. Okay, so next, logical here. Why did God choose us? Answer. He loves you. No, really. He loves you. He loved you, he loves you, and he will always love you. I know, right, but why? Because he loves you. That's it, folks. Do you have a problem with the fact that God loved you before the foundation of the world? What's the problem? Isn't that great? I loved my wife long before she ever loved me. (laughs) Is that a problem? I think not. I had to win the girl. Okay, I need to move on to one last point before the donut's cool. For what purpose, to what end, did God choose you? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's what he chose you for. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters in Christ, but he chose us to be holy and blameless in him. And in the weeks to come, we'll learn uh, about the fact that, that God has cleansed us from all our sin and made us holy and righteous. But this also refers to this preordained journey toward Christ-likeness. Romans 8.29 says the best. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. Now make no mistake, those whom God called to be his own are also predestined to begin to look like him. How much easier life would have been if at the moment of salvation, God grabbed you and took you to heaven. Whoosh! When we see him, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. But that's just not the way he rolls. As we said earlier, the security that comes from, the, from his choice of you is foundational. Why? Because this journey is long and hard. And the journey is really what I care about, folks. 
This life is a training center. All you trainers should get thrilled about that. A training center where God has a curriculum to change us from what we were, dead in your trespasses and sin which you once walked, passions of your flesh, caring desires of the body, from what you were and make you look more like Christ, predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. So, how does he accomplish this? Well, the book of Ephesians, we're going to see several tools in God's toolbox towards conformity. That where he changes, we former sinners into Christ's image. Now, we've already touched on the importance of the Bible and of the Holy Spirit. But add to that, uh, verse 116, uh, prayer. It's a tool. And then um, his pre-prepared experiences, uh, 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, those good works are for God's purpose, but they're also for your growth through participation. Christianity is an active sport. It's not a sideline sport. Next, we have the church, 3.10. The church is a key tool in your growth towards Christ-likeness. And we're not talking about the universal church. All Christians are part of the universal church. No, we are talking here about the local church, to be clear. If you want to experience real life, Christ is the center of everything, that super substantial abundant life, you will need to associate yourself with the benefits provided only through a local church. One objects, well, I get along just fine without the church. Who says? When you judge yourself by yourself, you get an A, I know. Ephesians showcases the church as God's primary training center. You cannot get around this. Next tool, 313, suffering. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged in my suffering for you, which are for your glory. Now, Gunnar will explain that theme. I know he knows about suffering. Next, we have this thing called spiritual gifts, 4-7. More on that later. Next, local church leaders. He says he gives us 4-11 pastors and teachers and so on. Look at why he gives us these people in the church. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until, here it is, until we reach unity of faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Church leaders in God's program are essential in attaining Christian maturity. You need to belong to a local church. Again, you meet these pastors where? At a local church. Now here's an interesting tool, 519, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those are tools, that whole list has been tools outside the house. But there are tools in the house as well. 522, wives, husbands, and children. And I know you've thought it. I could be really spiritual if it wasn't for my husband. Well, on the contrary, the family is among God's most powerful and most painful tool in your journey towards Christ-likeness. And I get this. Recently, uh, my wife and my daughter saw an inconsistency in my Christian walk. And it, it, it's been and it is a painful process for all parties. But God is serious about our sanctification. He doesn't let us live as fakers. 
and Gunnar's going to talk more about the family. So continuing, no surprise, more tools, six, uh, six or nine. Employees and employers are actually tools toward your sanctification. You see, the painful process of sanctification sort of makes you wish that Adam and Eve didn't muck it up in the garden to begin with, doesn't it? Well, that would be a grave mistake. You see, just as God chose us, chose to put his love on us before the foundation of the world, in the same way, God designed the plan of salvation well before the foundation of the world as well. Revelation 14.6 tells us it's the eternal gospel. It was always meant to be. It was God's plan before sin ever began. The gospel wasn't some sort of plan B concocted after the fall of man. No, the gospel was always God's plan A. God's purpose for humanity was not Adam and Eve in a garden, but always it was Christ on a cross and a new heaven and a new earth. I'll say it again. God's purpose for humanity was not Adam and Eve in a garden, but it was always Christ on a cross and a new heaven and a new earth. But why did God design it that way? Because it was necessary. But I don't understand right. You see, suffering, suffering is a necessary pathway in your journey toward Christ-likeness. Sickness is part of the journey towards health, right? Weakness is part of the journey towards strength. This has always been the case. Your suffering, whether a sinful spouse, a wayward child, a malady, an accident, or drought, is not a detour from God's plan for your purification. It was a charted pathway on the journey. It was a preordained, it was preordained by a loving God. Still, whatever ails you is not the final destination. The best is yet to come. So Ephesians tells us, press on, don't quit. God chose you. If our being in Christ is anchored way back in an eternity, then we have every reason to be confident that he will see us safely through time and bring us back into the eternal present, safe in the arms of Jesus. And so the hymn writers saw this, and you sung it. Loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know, spirit sent from Christ above, thou dost witness it is so. Oh, the full and precious peace from his presence, all divine, in a love that cannot cease. I am his, and he is mine. In a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. Father, according to the kind intention of your will, to the praise of the glory of your grace, which you freely bestowed on us in the beloved, thank you. We've scratched the surface of this the immensity of this teaching, and we are really tiny before your greatness. We're humbled before your love. So Lord, forgive us for our defiance and our pride, our wanting to always look for some reason with ourselves why you chose us. How humbled we are to realize that you loved us because you loved us. And this is love, not that we first loved you, but that you loved us. 
Your love sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, and we just marvel that you loved us before the dawn of time. So Lord, may your love help us to lay aside our fear of exposure, our fear of pain, our fear of rejection as we participate in your planned journey toward Christ-likeness. Help us not to reject but to value the very tools that you've put into our lives in order to shape us in the image of your Son. And also help us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as a church body, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another until we see that day draw near. In Jesus' precious name, amen.